In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. In the 2014 hit show True Detective, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson star as two unlikely partners who are trying to solve a series of murders in rural Louisiana. McConaughey's character is pretty quirky, but he does have this one uncanny ability. He is a genius when it comes to extracting confessions. When he's asked about his secret to getting people to confess, he replies, look, everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants a confession, the guilty especially. Oh, but everybody's guilty. Now, while this insight into the human heart doesn't make for polite dinner conversation, it is still nevertheless true. Everyone knows deep down that there is something wrong with them. Famous novelist and author of Sherlock Holmes, Mr. Arthur Conan Doyle, he knew this very well. The story goes that Doyle uh, sent uh, 12 friends, or sorry, he was doing a social experiment in order to prove this. And so what he did was he selected 12 of his friends, each of whom were very dignified and notoriously virtuous. And so one day he sends each of these 12 people uh, the same telegram. And on the telegram were these seven words, all has been discovered, flee at once. And within 24 hours, all 12 of them fled the country and were never heard of again. Now, whether the story is true or not, nobody really knows, but let me pose this to you this morning. Imagine if every part of your life was recorded, and the absolute worst parts, the parts that you've never told anyone before, the parts that only you and God know about, imagine that they were aired on a big screen right here this morning for everyone to see. I reckon every one of us would be mortified. And that's because no matter how hard we try to convince ourselves otherwise, we all know deep down in our hearts that there is something wrong with us. And the Bible calls this original sin. Now our world and even many Christians wrongly believe that people are basically born good, or at least maybe as blank slates. And I think the reason that some Christians do this is because they genuinely want to defend God's goodness. But unfortunately, this ignores the plain teaching of the Bible. God did, in fact, create the world good, but it was our first parents, Adam and Eve, who traded their inherent goodness for sin. They committed cosmic treason by denying God's rule and reign in their lives, and they became their own arbiters of truth. And in doing so, they plunged themselves and their entire posterity into a state of sin. And so now we are all guilty and corrupt, both by nature and by choice. And if that were the end of the story, that would be a dreadful thing indeed. But the good news is that the entirety of the Bible is about the intervention of God to rescue humanity. And our passage in Acts this morning is going to shed some light on this rescue mission of God. We're going to see that God is not just about forgiving His people. He's also committed to fixing the problem that made forgiveness necessary in the first place. He's not satisfied simply to forgive His people and leave them in a state of sin. No, He's going to remake them. 
He's going to recreate them. That's what Pentecost is chiefly about. It's about recreation. So this morning, I want to examine this new creation that happens on the day of Pentecost. And I want us to see three things. The agent of recreation, the means of recreation, and the results of recreation. So the agent, the means, and the result. So first, the agent of recreation. Look with me at the first four verses of our lesson in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples were, were all together in one place. Now you see, Pentecost was already a religious festival in Jesus' day. It was known as the Festival of Weeks, and it was celebrated uh, 50 days after the Passover, hence the uh, prefix in Greek, penti, meaning 50. So it was 50 days after the Passover. And in Judaism, Pentecost was a celebration of the harvest. Jews would travel from all over to come to the temple in Jerusalem in order to offer back to God the first fruits of their crops. And that's why we see later in the passage why there are Jews from all over the Mediterranean who are in Jerusalem at this time. They came to present their first fruits in the temple. But the reason Jesus' disciples were gathered together in this one place uh, in Jerusalem was, right, it was because right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, I am sending you the promise of my Father. And he commanded them, saying, Stay in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. And no doubt what happens next in verses 2 through 4 is bizarre. What do we make of the noise that sounded like a mighty rushing wind? Even more, how do we understand tongues that resembled fire coming down and hovering over each of the disciples? And then what about their speaking in other tongues? What does all of this mean? In fact, this is the very question that the original audience will come to ask in verse 12. Apparently, the first witnesses of Pentecost were just as perplexed at all this as we are today. And in short, these images of fire and wind, they symbolize the presence and the power of God. Fire was a common symbol in the Bible of the presence of God. God appeared to Abraham as a flaming torch and a burning pot. He appeared to Moses as a burning bush. He appeared as a pillar of fire leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And when he delivered his law on Mount Sinai, he came down on the mountain in fire. He was present there. So if fire represents the presence of God, then the wind was associated with God's power. One of the most amazing words in Hebrew is ruach. It has a wide range of meaning. It means spirit or breath or wind. It conveys air in motion. The, the ruach, the breath, the, the spirit, the wind of God, it conveys God's activity, His energy, His power, His life. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we hear about the lifeless existence before God created. It says that the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit, the Ruach of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. See, before creation, the Spirit of God was there. And then the next thing that happens is God speaks creation into existence. His breath, His Spirit, goes forth and brings life. It is by the Holy Spirit that the first creation comes into being. And so here in this little room in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, the symbol of fire meant that God's presence was in the disciples' midst. And the sound of the wind 
meant that God's power was in the room. The Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, was now here. The author of Acts wanted to convey through symbols of fire and wind that there was a new creation beginning here at Pentecost. The same creator spirit that created in the beginning, who was the agent of that first creation, is now the agent of a new creation. And this new creation is the church, the people of God, the new temple of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that Pentecost is the birthday of the church? But this new creation is different from the first creation. It has a, an altogether different kind of life. This new creation is endued with the resurrection life of Jesus. You see, unlike the life that was in the beginning in uh, Genesis, now there is an indestructible, eternal life that has come upon Jesus Christ. And the miracle of Pentecost is that Jesus pours all of that indestructible life out through the Holy Spirit on his people. What was true for Jesus at his resurrection is now true for the church at Pentecost. So that's the first point. The Holy Spirit, symbolized through wind and fire, is this agent of new creation. Well, what about all the tongues? Why did the, why did the fire come in the form of tongues that rested on each of these disciples? Well, that brings me to my second point, the means of recreation. If the fire and wind symbolized the agent, the tongues symbolized the means of recreation. The Holy Spirit enabled the disciples to speak in various other tongues. We learn in verse 6 that these other tongues at Pentecost weren't some unknown language or random sounds. They were the specific dialects, the, the native languages of all those from around the Mediterranean world who happened to be in Jerusalem at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was enabling this small band of uneducated Galileans to miraculously speak in such a way that these foreigners could hear and understand what they were saying. And what was it that they were saying? Well, verse 11 tells us, the Holy Spirit was enabling Jesus' disciples to tell of the mighty works of God. This is where we discover the means of the Spirit's work of recreation. It is through the proclamation of the mighty deeds of God that the Spirit of God recreates. Preaching is the God-ordained means of His recreation. It's the means that brings about the church. On Pentecost, it's the Word of God that gives birth to the church, not the other way around. And that's the, the heart of Pentecost. And this has several implications, I think, for today, but let me offer you just one. Do you see how preaching must hold a primary place in the life of the church? But preaching has fallen on hard times, I think, today. Today, many believe that the church needs to shift its focus in order to reach a new generation. They say that what people really need is maybe just a few practical pointers or a brief therapeutic message to help them get through the week. Some have even gone so far as to say that it's a sin to bore people with the gospel. And as such, many have advocated for a shift when it comes to preaching. Some have wanted to get rid of it altogether. Others wanted to shift the message and the medium of preaching. And for many in the church today, the recipe for an ideal sermon might go something like this. You begin with a penetrating question or a funny little quip and add a dose of heartwarming stories sprinkled throughout. Add a little bit of humor and close with five principles on how you can live your best life now. 
and make sure it's no longer than 12 minutes. And if you can add some technology in, even better. But this is, I think, more or less the modern take on preaching. But what does Pentecost tell us about the nature and place of preaching? Well, we learn that preaching is the bedrock of the church. It was through preaching the Word of God that the church came into existence, and therefore, preaching has a centrality in the mission of the church. And have you ever stopped and wondered why it is that we have a sermon? Why it is that we preach? Is it merely just my thoughts or a preacher's thoughts on God or life? Is it simply just an opportunity to teach about God? If so, then perhaps maybe preaching is, in fact, outdated. But Pentecost tells us that true preaching is not primarily about information transfer. It's about recreation. It's about changing the hearts of people in their seats. And preaching is nothing short of bringing life out of death. The prophet Ezekiel gives us a great picture of the nature of preaching. In chapter 37 of the book of Ezekiel, God brings Ezekiel to a valley filled with dry bones. And God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? And to which Ezekiel wisely responds, only you know, Lord. But then God commands Ezekiel to preach. To preach to the dry bones and let them hear the word of the Lord. And when he does, the bones start coming together and they are made alive. And this is what happens in and through preaching. So let me ask you, do you come to church expecting this sort of thing to occur? How might this actually change uh, the way you think, the, the way you approach Sunday mornings? You see, where many have gone astray today is they believe that preaching is primarily about giving advice on how to live. But that's a basic misdiagnosis of the human condition. If people are essentially good, then a few pointers, a few suggestions on how to live, that might do. But listen to how the Bible depicts the human condition. It says, on this side of the Garden of Eden, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are blind and deaf to the kingdom of God. We are born with a sinful nature and alienated from God the Father. And we're even his enemies, Roman tells us, Romans tells us. And we've gone astray and are helpless to find our way back to him. Now, if that is the human condition, you can start to see how utterly unprofitable it would be to tell people how to live good lives. If, in fact, sermons are primarily about what we as humans are to do, what good is that to dead people? Last time I checked, dead people can't do anything. Can you see how a therapeutic or a self-help message is actually a form of pastoral malpractice? Now, I can't tell you how often I meet with people who think that Christianity is really just about being a good person, loving other people. And while God does want us to do that, it's not the center, it's not the primary message of the Christian faith. Christianity is not about making good people better. It's not even about making bad people good people. It's about making dead people alive. That is why preaching must be the center and that's why we must preach the mighty works of God as they did in Acts 2. This is the content of true preaching. It's about God and his mighty works, the mightiest of them being found in Jesus Christ, his son. The church in Acts was born because it heard the message of God coming to his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the true content of every sermon. It's the true preaching that is centered on Him that gives life. In Him, we see God's miraculous, mighty deeds most clearly.
clearly that He took on flesh. He became one of us. He was obedient to the point of giving up Himself as a substitute in our place to pardon our sins. He was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit in order to bring about an entirely new world order. One marked by indestructible and abundant life. That's the message that must be proclaimed in the church because that's the pinnacle of God's mighty deeds. When we hear about the self-giving love of God in Jesus Christ, that is what brings true life. This is the message that the Holy Spirit works through to recreate men and women. So the Holy Spirit is the agent and preaching is the means. Well, lastly, what are the results of this recreation? Well, an implicit result is uh, that the Spirit produces radical humility. I want you to think about it. Every other religion in the world is about mankind doing something to make themselves right with God. It's about following the right ethical code or performing the right rituals or saying the right prayers, basically doing the right things. But as I said, Christianity is primarily about what God has come to do for you and for me. He is the one who changes people's hearts. And therefore, the Apostle Paul can say to the believers in Corinth, what did you do or what do you have that you did not receive? And then if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, the sovereign, the unilateral, recreative work of God is the only way human beings can be truly humbled because it wasn't how smart they are. It wasn't anything they did that was the result or the reason God saved them. It was solely the grace of God. You see, the Christian message is the only source for authentic, true humility. But there is another result that's more obvious, perhaps, in this passage, and it's that the recreative work of God results in radical unity among great diversity. You remember all those nations uh, that Carolyn listed in, in verses 9 through 11 that she read so well, by the way. That was impressive. If you are like me, when you heard all of those uh, nations, you probably have no idea where those places are. But if you were to do the work and look at a map, they're almost like a circle all around with Jerusalem being right in the center. And the significance of this is that what was once true for, for Israel is about to go be true for the entire world. It's going to birth forth and be like going out into the world like spokes on a wheel. The promise that was to Abraham was that God would bless through him the nations of the earth. It is through Jesus that the walls of the division between Israel and all the other nations, they come crashing down. Do you know that the church is the only organization from the outset that has been made up of folks that just don't seem to fit together? From the beginning, it's been this curious band of misfits who are bound to one another, sometimes with the only thing in common being Jesus Christ. The church isn't some gathering of people with the same personalities or same interests or same backgrounds. From the start, it's been this conglomerate of ragtag people, and for most of them, the only common denominator was Jesus Christ. The church is made up of people from every culture. It's indiscriminate of race, wealth, gender, and ethnicity. It is made up of people with different tastes, different looks, different interests. And yet the church is one because she is bound together in this same person, Jesus Christ. And this really hit home for me when I spent some time in Istanbul after college in a city that has 15 million people, a city that was once the heart 
of the Christian world, it now holds only about 1,000 Christians today. And I was lucky enough to go and actually live for several weeks with a family there in the summer of 2009. And most of the family, they couldn't speak, speak any English. They looked different from me. They had different customs, different foods, different language. But one experience was so impactful, I'll never forget it. The grandmother and the family couldn't, she couldn't speak a lick of English. And uh, one evening, she and I were sitting together in their tiny little living room, and she had her little Turkish New Testament out. And so I went and I got my English Bible, and before I knew it, we were able to communicate using uh, pointing out our favorite verses of the Bible. And I felt this weird bond with this 60-year-old woman who was from Turkey, whom I had only known for a few weeks, and who couldn't speak even the same language as I could. We experienced something together that crossed cultures, that went straight to the deepest parts of our soul. We had each been remade by the Holy Spirit, and our lives were now centered on Jesus. God had recreated us into a family, making this 21-year-old American and this 60-year-old Turkish woman brother and sister. You see, the ultimate result of God's recreating work is astonishment. It's astonishment from those who don't know how such unity is possible. It was true on the church's first birthday at Pentecost, and that is still true today. The world is astonished by the radical unity that exists within this new humanity called the church. May we here at St. Philip's exhibit such radical unity among great diversity that the world will also be confused and astonished. And may that provide a witness that will pave a way for us, like these first Christians who proclaimed the mighty works of God and experienced the resurrected life of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. May that be true for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not leave us as we were, but you sent your Son and then the Holy Spirit to renew our lives. I pray for those who may not know this new life, that they would even now experience it. And for those who have tasted of the goodness of Jesus, would you renew them by the Holy Spirit and empower them for the work of ministry. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.